Thank you very much. Shall we pray as we ask God to speak through his word this morning? Father God, we thank you for giving good news to the world in your son Jesus. And as we listen this morning, may our ears and our hearts be open to receive. And in the right sense, may your word pierce to our hearts and as we respond, transform our very lives too. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, Mark was a very successful man working in a London bank uh, with a lovely wife and three children. And his wife was a Christian, a member of our church. And she began to invite him along to church with her. And I think probably just to keep her happy, he used to come from time to time. Uh, he came reluctantly, I think. He was of the view that religion was just a superstition and didn't really expect, I think, to find anything by way of real truth, let alone things that would change lives in what he discovered in Christianity. He was surprised to find that the Christians he met at church were actually quite friendly, because we generally are, aren't we? He found a quality of warmth and welcome he really hadn't expected, and he began, he found, to listen to the sermons. Which, again, I'd, I'd recommend that. <laughs> he found that they were based on the Bible and spoke a truth that made sense to him when he'd expected them to be simply empty moral lectures from the vicar. He found in his spare time that he was browsing the internet looking for what evidence there really was for the historical Jesus. He began to read the Bible for himself. He came to our Discover course and began to ask questions and to listen and find some answers. And a minister friend began to meet up and read the Bible with him. And long story short, after some months, he came to Christ, praise God, and became a follower of Christ. And God has changed his life. Uh, he's now a very dedicated member of that church. He leads a Bible study for men now. And he's giving Gospels away to friends at work, hoping they're going to read them. It's very likely that someone here this morning is in a similar spiritual position to where Mark was, I'm calling him Mark this morning, those years ago. That you also think, in this post-Christian culture that we live in now, where if someone is not an active Christian, they're probably not a sort of Christmas and Easter-only nominal. They're probably just a, a person who believes in nothing and everything. What we call a kind of secular worldview. Probably a skeptic, in fact, as Mark was. You probably suspect that Christianity is just another superstitious religious thing. If you like it, go for it. But we don't all need it. It seems, you think, to give no more satisfaction or peace to people than anything else that you find elsewhere. Now, important to say, we Christians are not perfect. We are not always full of joy. We aren't always completely rational. We don't have all the answers. But it may surprise you if I claim this morning, if that's you that there is plenty of rational support for God and for Jesus in particular. We don't have time for 
more on that this morning. That, I'm sure, will come another time. But in this, the first of just two sermons, a mini-series, this, we're looking at the good news, as I said. I'm calling it Good News That Saves this morning. And we're going to look at the evidence for the good news, the historical Jesus. And at the impact that that news, that message had on the people that first heard it. So that's this week, good news that saves. And next week, part two, we'll look at good news that shapes. The impact of that message about Jesus on the first church, the first Christians. So this morning, from Acts 2, and I'm aware it finished with a bit of a cliffhanger. That's why I'm mentioning next week, so do come for what happened next. This morning, simple message from the passage. There are, I think, just two things for us to learn today about that good news and why it's good. First thing is this, the good news is what God has done. And that's really the, the bulk of the passage, the reading from verse 22 right through to, well, the end of verse 36. It's what God has done. Uh, just orientating ourselves for a second to Peter's speech, as it is, here in Acts 2. Jesus spent three years, we know, with his closest followers, we call them his disciples, teaching them, demonstrating to them who he was. That he was no ordinary man. He uh, Read the gospel to find these things, but he was met for his pains with execution by his enemies. Um, but he had spent his time with his followers, teaching healing, doing miracles, preparing them for when he wouldn't be there. Uh, He was then, as I said, executed by his enemies. And the story was on Easter morning, he was raised again. We'll come back to that. And that, that message began to spread as he then gave his spirit. God came upon the church to equip them to tell other people about this news. And Peter explains what this is about by making in his little speech here, three key statements about what God has done. Here's the first one, it's verse 22. God has accredited Jesus. That accredited word, it simply means God has publicly demonstrated that Jesus is, as it were, his man, his chosen one to do his work on earth. That what Jesus does is is what God does. What Jesus says is what God says. Peter says it's by miracles, wonders and signs, verse 22, which God did among you through Jesus. Those signs pointed to Jesus and who he is. They accredited him. They were his testimony. And again, read the gospel for yourself. Do it this week. I'll come back next week, haven't read it. Jesus taught with an authority no one seemed to have other than him. He touched untouchables. He forgave sinners. He gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead even. No one who knew Jesus, and this is just the witness of history, could say, as people sometimes do today, he was just a good man. He was far too radical, upsetting, Remarkable for that. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried convincing 
people around you, your close friends and especially your family, that you're divine? Have you tried that? I think if you do, you'll find it's quite a tricky thing to do because they know you too well, don't they? But that's the extraordinary thing. Jesus' closest friends, as, as we can tell from the New Testament story, even his family came to recognize that he was uniquely sent from God. And they were even prepared to die for it later. So when Jesus said the things that only God can say and did the things only God can do, they responded not with scoffing, but with wonder, with loyalty, with faith. God accredited Jesus, that's the first thing. Peter then says he also raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 23, Peter describes how the Jewish leaders and the Gentile Romans put Jesus to death. Historians, again, back up both the fact that Jesus was crucified under Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and at least there was the rumour very quickly that he'd been raised again. But here's a surprise. Peter says Jesus' death was not a surprise to God. It was actually part of God's plan, he says. He was handed over to you, that's to the Jewish leaders and to the Roman leaders, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God foresaw this, God foreknew this. He planned it. And Peter's going to go on and back that up by talking about how the Old Testament scriptures predicted the resurrection of God's chosen one, the Messiah, But actually, they also predict the death of his chosen one, his servant. God planned that his son Jesus, who came to serve him and others, would die for the sins of his people. To wipe them away, to forgive them, to bring them back to him. To bring us back to him. It's good news, you see. And so, verse 24, after the death of Jesus, verse 24 starts with one of the great buts of the Bible. It's full of buts. There's the kind of the bad news as well that Jesus died. But, says Peter, what did God do? Verse 24. God raised him from the dead. He accredited him and he raised him from death. The tomb was empty. Again, historians basically agree on this. The tomb was empty where the body of Jesus should have been. Now, Again, this was a shock, because the secular view today, that this life is all there is, and there are plenty of people that hold that kind of view, is actually not a new one. It's not a kind of clever, post-scientific, post-Darwinian idea. The ancient world knew all about atheism, that this is all there is. There's a very common ancient Greek and Roman inscription, which if you translate it, read basically like this. I was not... I was, I am not, in other words, I've died, this is my tombstone, and finally, I care not. And that's kind of blunt, brutal atheism, isn't it? And that was in the ancient world. Peter, in the face of that, acknowledges the power of death, but claims that Jesus has defeated it. He calls death, actually. He, Jesus went, he says, through the agonies. The word there for birth pains. So, you know, if, if you're a mother here, you may have forgotten them, but you know all about birth pains, don't you? 
Once a mother's in labour, you see, that baby is coming out, isn't it? You can't stop it. That baby is coming out once you're in labour. That's what Peter's saying. Once Jesus was in death, he was coming out of it. He was going to get born, as it were, again. He was coming to new life. Death, as he says, had no hold on him, just as labour can't hold the baby. In fact, labour forces the baby out. Death, for Jesus, simply meant new life. Remarkable and unique. Supports that claim, Peter, by quoting Psalm 16. We're talking about the scriptures just now. The prophecies. King David wrote this hundreds of years earlier. And David says there, not only that his heart and his tongue rejoice, but his body also rejoices. Because God has promised not to abandon him to the grave. David's speaking, isn't he, of the hope of physical, eternal resurrection. And he spells out why that matters. He says in verse 29, I can tell you confidently that David died and was buried. You can see his tomb today. He's still, as it were, dead. So what did David mean by talking about resurrection? He can't have meant himself. So he says, verse 30, Peter, David was a prophet. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants, David's descendants, on his throne, the royal line of David. And therefore, Psalm 16, that he's quoting, is actually not about David at all. It's David singing about someone else. Now, if you've been to a carol service, you'll have heard some of the Christmas readings, some of the great carols we sing. And a number of those, don't they, talk about how Jesus was born of the line of David, in the city of David. If Jesus, and I don't suppose he needed this, but if he was featured on Who Do You Think You Are? He would have discovered, as he knew already, that he was a descendant, through many generations, of King David. God raised Jesus, the descendant of David, as promised to David years before. That's the second thing that Peter says God has done. He's accredited Jesus with signs. He's raised him from the dead. And then lastly, God has made Jesus king. Or he's exalted Jesus. He's made him king. So in verse 33, Peter sort of wraps up his story of what God has done in Jesus. He says, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. That's a reference to the day of Pentecost and the remarkable gift the Spirit gave his church of speaking about Jesus in other languages to all the different tribes and nations present. So the Spirit, God's Spirit, who enables us to spread the good news is also a sign of who Jesus is. Why is the Spirit being given to us? Well, Peter says, it's because Jesus is the King who's given us that gift. It's a sign of where he now sits, at God's right hand on the throne. Coronations are very impressive moments, aren't they? If you ever watched the Queen's coronation all those years ago... Uh, it's said, actually, I think having watched Trump's inauguration back in January this year, I agree with this. The Brits do pomp and ceremony like no one else, don't we? We're very good at it. Coronations are spectacular. 
Um, but the Bible tells us to await a coronation like no other, the coronation of Jesus. In fact, in a sense, it's already happened, Peter's saying. He's already on the throne. One day we'll see that. So Peter quotes again Psalm 110 this time. The Lord, verse 34, the Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, that's a reference to someone else, not David, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's David saying that one day God is going to send a king whom he will seat right next to him in heaven. Extraordinary, isn't it? That a human being should sit next to God in heaven. Extraordinary. But that's God's enthronement of his king. We call him the Messiah. Now again, David didn't do that, did he? David did not ascend to God's right hand. David's dead and buried, as we saw. David's talking about someone else here. He calls him my Lord. Who does he mean? Well, again, you know the answer already, don't you? Verse 36, Peter spells it out. Therefore, in view of what God has done in the resurrection, in view of the promise of the Psalms, let all God's people be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you and collectively we're all involved in, that's our sins that led to Jesus being crucified, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord of all, Christ, King of all. So that's the gist of what Peter says, isn't it? This is what God has done. This is the good news that God has sent Jesus, accredited him, raised him, and now enthroned him as king. That's the good news. That's the good news that my friend Mark came to base his life upon, that turned him around, that changed his life. That's the good news that's for anyone here this morning, that any one of us has turned away from God in our hearts, any one of us is spiritually dead to God, needing that new birth. But that he gives that forgiveness and new birth freely through what Jesus has done, through what God has done, who accredited him, raised him, and exalted him for us. Maybe you're here today and you rather suspect that all religion is just superstitious nonsense and moral guidance with no deep meaning. Well, please don't take my word for it this morning that it's much more than that, that there's historical evidence for who Jesus really is. Check it out for yourself. Keep coming. Um, pick up a gospel from us at the bookstore at the back there. Read it for yourself. Ask a Christian to discuss it with you. Our lives, you see, make no sense until we hear the good news, the best news the world has. No other news like it. News that saves. Our eternity, indeed, is deeply insecure until we discover who Jesus is and what he's done in dying for us. As we remember this morning in the signs of his body and blood, the bread and the wine. It's very easy, isn't it, though, for any of us who are Christ followers here this morning to know that it's all about Jesus, about God and what he's done, but to kind of take that for granted, to keep it to ourselves. And if it's the best news in the world, we can't do that, can we? We've got to share that. We need to tell our friends, 
our families, our neighbours, our colleagues, our fellow students. How can anyone here this morning who calls yourself, or myself for that matter, a follower of Jesus, not want to stop and wonder this morning, but actually every day, at what God has done? He didn't have to do this, but in love he chose to. And to pray for someone you know, that God will give you an opportunity to point them to the good news too, to share it with them. So, second question this morning. The first one is the good news, what is it? Well, it's what God has done. Here's the second thing about the good news, what we must do. Because actually, this is also good news, what we must do. Did you see there the response of the crowd? Uh, Quite remarkable. It says the hearers, basically they're in shock, aren't they? They were cut to the heart when they heard these words. And they say, what must we do? Cut to the heart, the truth pierced them. Maybe that God's speaking to someone this morning and you're conscious that somehow what I'm saying and even what the words are saying on the pages of the Bible are going much deeper than you expected. Not just human words, but God is speaking to you. The Bible is living and active, you see. And when that happens, when the good news goes deep into us, they ask the right question, don't they? What must we do? Don't just ignore it. Don't just close your heart to it. Ask, what do I do in response? And Peter says it's very simple, verse 38. Repent and be baptised. That's all it is. Two things, repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive God's new life, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, my last few minutes here, let's just think about those two things. Repent first. Repent. The word means a change of direction. A turning back, having gone the wrong way. You know, I'm terrible at this. If you ask any of our family in the car if, if we kind of get lost somewhere... I'm terrible at admitting I've got it wrong and turning around and going back. I hate doing that. But of course you have to do it, or you're in the wrong place. And the Bible says spiritually, we are in the wrong place without Jesus. We've gone the wrong way. We've ignored God. We've gone far from him, in fact. Our lives are empty. Our eternity is in danger without him. And we have to admit that and turn back. Repent. Turn back to God. Then the second thing, very simply, be baptised. Baptism is, as you've seen perhaps in Christian churches, it's the moment when with water, we either sprinkle or splash or even uh, immerse people in water. And it is an outward sign that the good news of Jesus changes us in our inward hearts. It's a sign of turning back to God and of the new life that he gives to all who do that. It's good news, you see. That's what baptism is. It's a sign of the good news. It's the way that we say, I got it wrong, but Jesus saved me. He died for me. He's given me new life. And I pledge my loyalty to him now. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christ follower, you may well need more time to keep exploring. Maybe that unlike this crowd, you're not quite ready to go, right, absolutely, I'm going for that. Well, just keep coming, as I say. Read things. Read the Gospels for yourselves. Talk to people about this stuff. 
But it could even be there's someone here this morning and you've been around church things, you've read the Gospels for yourself and you know who Jesus is, you recognise the truth of Peter's words, of what God has done and you simply need to respond this morning. And I'll say a prayer in a second that will help you to do that. But actually, receiving the bread and wine this morning is perhaps the most helpful response today to what God has done. To say, I went away, I'm coming back to you. I'm receiving what you've done for me. I'm pledging my loyalty forever. Now, got to be careful here, because whenever we use the language of what we must do, as I'm doing, what God has done, what we must do, there is a danger. We think that's what Christianity is all about, what I do. God loves me because I repent really hard and thoroughly. God loves me because I'm baptised again and again and again. And I do all these things. And Actually, that's not the good news at all. The good news is that God has done everything. It's what we call grace. It's God's attitude of freely offering us new life, forgiveness, in what Christ has done for us, not what I do. So in a sense, all I do is I just come with open hands, don't I? I receive the promise as Peter calls it, of forgiveness and new life. So what would Holy Trinity look like, do you think? What could we see God do in this church, but also in this community around us here, and across this city, if we each received the new life that God freely offers us in Jesus? If we start living it and sharing it, with those around us, if we can replace for people around us the image of Christianity as outdated and boring with what it really is, historically grounded, life-changing, a relationship of forgiveness, peace and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. A moment of quiet and then I'm going to lead us in a prayer so that we can respond to the good news of Jesus perhaps afresh because we've just got uh, tired or forgotten it perhaps for the first time even so Lord Jesus Christ we thank you for your remarkable life on earth, for the signs which pointed to who you are, for your death to take away our sins and forgive us, your resurrection which has broken the power even of death, and your reign now in glory on the throne as king. We come to you this morning For those of us that are seeking, help us to listen and open our eyes. Give us understanding of you. And for those of us that wish to pledge our loyalty to you in gratitude, thank you for what you've done. Cleanse us from all our wrongs. And may the bread and wine of communion today be a powerful sign 
of your death for us and of the new life which you give us every day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.